0: is up everyone welcome back to the all-nighter podcast where we talk about architectural practice and education so my name is Jarrett hardy and i'm here with my co-host jordan vonderbrink and we hope to inspire and guide future and current architecture students design students and young professionals So today we are continuing our our series called Architectural Educators Perspective. And we have another guest on the show today and we've been having a lot of fun learning and diving deep into what makes architectural education successful. Um, And so today I'm super happy to introduce a past professor of mine and of Jordan's as well. His name is Gregory Critchlow. And so Gregory is a Colorado native where he attended the University of Colorado Boulder and received a bachelor's degree in environmental design in 1995. And he later attended the University of Illinois, Chicago, where he earned his master's degree in architecture and received the American Institute of Architects Henry Adams Certificate of Merit. And so Gregory is also a current architecture professor at the University of Kansas and is also a registered architect and former lecturer in the architecture department of the University of Colorado Denver where I currently am at and as a project architect and lead designer for In Situ Design. Gregory has worked on projects such as a 31,000 square foot veterans home, and that one was called the fourth quarter, and worked on the Mulroy housing, uh, which was a community center, and it was completed for the Denver Housing Authority. And Greg has also worked as a senior associate for Burkett Design in the Denver office. And so Gregory originally came to KU as the Langston Hughes Visiting Professor and this is one of the most prestigious awards that a professor can actually earn at KU and this program was made in honor of the famous poet poet Langston Hughes as he resided in Lawrence from 1903 to 1916 and the goal of the program is to bring in young emerging minority professors each semester. And so Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you today?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for Good. having me.
0: Perfect. Well, so we just want to ask you the first three questions to start it off. And so it's going to be, where did you grow up? Why did you choose architecture? And what was your college education like? And then we'll go from there.
1: All right. Uh, so I was born and raised in Colorado. I was actually born uh, at the Fitzsimmons Army Hospital. My father was stationed in Colorado as an Army officer. Um, I... Growing up, let's see, I growing up, I was mostly into athletics, so I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And so when I uh, became a senior in high school, um, I was traveling back and forth. I left high school to go play hockey. Um, and then it came clear to me that I just didn't want to keep doing that. And so my parents were uh, giving me this decision to make that I had to figure out how to make college work because they had invested all their time and money into me playing this sport. So I took a year off um, and I moved to New York City. Oh, wow. And it was my grandmother and I worked in Bloomingdale's Manhattan. So my, my ambitious goal growing up in high school was that I wanted to be in fashion design.
0: Oh, wow. Um,
1: but uh, my family wasn't so keen on that idea. But um, I wanted to learn more about it. So I decided to just save up money, leave home, took a gap year between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college, was able to work in Bloomingdale's Manhattan, discovered everything about fashion. But, you know, what I really discovered was uh, in between going to my grandmother's house and to work was all the beautiful uh, city context around me. Mm. Um, and I was just amazed about how these buildings really kind of created space. Uh and so that was kind of my first taste of it and then <laughs> to believe it or not I went Spike Lee's movie uh Jungle Fever came out
2: <laughs> uh
1: that that year <laughs> and the main character uh was an architect. Oh. And so at that point I was like I could do this. Um so I actually that was my inspiration at that point to pursue it. I was fortunate enough uh after that year I came back to Boulder because it's in state tuition. Uh, and I was fortunate enough that uh, Boulder had a program that I could um, relatively matriculate into uh, without knowing a lot about the process and then really had to work hard to catch up with a lot of my
2: peers.
0: Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Mm-hmm. And then how did you start practicing? What was your first firm? And then where did you go from there?
1: So I graduated, uh, undergraduate in 1995. My, uh, and then again, I was still... For some reason, after school ends, I'm always unsure what to do next. Um, I was a courier, uh, okay. a high school messenger, uh, for the first nine to ten months after I graduated undergraduate, and then I um, unfortunately got into an accident. Oh. Uh, and so, uh, I worked in a deli, but the, or actually, I worked in a coffee shop that had a deli um, in a building at 1999 Broadway, and it was in the bottom of the building. And uh, on the ninth floor was a firm by the name of Briquette Design, a new firm uh, originated by a woman by the name of Amy Burkett. So it was a woman owned firm. Um, and at the time, I wasn't ready to go into an office and she wasn't ready to hire. But we had the opportunity to talk about my resume and do an interview. And then when I uh, was in that accident, my father had asked me what my degree was in and I told him and he's like, well, it's about time to use it. So yeah. I called upon her again and um, I worked. That's where I first started. So I was the ninth person at Briquette Design. Wow. And by the time I left, I worked there for about four and a half years. Uh, and that's when I went over to Anderson Masondale. But by the time I left, they were up to 45 people. So at that point, uh, things were really, really busy. It was almost like the time that mm-hmm. we're in right now for architecture.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. that, are they still downtown Denver? Or do you know where they're located now?
1: Yeah, they're, yes, they're still uh, downtown Denver. Um, like a lot of firms in Denver, especially, a lot of mid sized firms, are, they have been bought by a larger firm. Yeah. And now they're a different name, but they're still a lot of the assets that they had, the larger firm bought. Yeah. So, um, yes, they're still around, though.
2: Cool.
0: Well, that's mm-hmm. it's kind of good to see where because we both had your professor, but we didn't really know a lot about your background. So it's interesting mm-hmm. to see kind of how you rose up and got to where you're at now. And so mm-hmm. well, I guess that this will lead into COVID. And so what is your plan for this fall? And how are you preparing for COVID with your classes, and your <coughs> studios? And we'll see how that goes.
1: Uh, you know, this fall i they've asked every professor what their um, position would be in terms of how comfort or how comfortable they would be returning back to campus or staying online Uh, so i chose to do a hybrid method uh, that was mostly in person and online Um, with you right now everything is so fluid it could change yeah you know Mm -hmm. it's not even my decision Uh, or even the university's decision it could be held at a state level or a a local level but so that is the plan
2: Uh,
1: but the university they really kind of understand the arts and sciences classes they don't really understand studio classes so i think as a department we're trying to work that out how that works because our studios are usually 16 to 17 people and the studio spaces can only hold 11 people with the uh social distancing so yeah you know, we'll, we'll, we'll figure that out. I mean, I think one of the things that would be advantageous in studio would be have a camera so we could do a uh, simultaneous zoom and in-person class. Mm. Um, so, you know, cause we have the projectors, but we don't have studio cameras. Um, cause I'm, I would assume not all students are comfortable coming back to campus. You know, I know a lot are, but not, there are some that probably are not, which is uh, understandable.
0: Definitely. And then, so in terms of a Zoom camera, so you would have part of the studio with you in person and record whatever's going on, broadcast that to whoever's out of the class, right?
1: Yeah. So I would say it would be a synchronous uh, system to where we'd all be in class together, except I I, I would say we'd all be participating, but some would be uh, remotely and some would be in the class Hmm. as opposed to... Trying to have one class or meeting in in the studio, and then trying to have another class on Zoom, we could have it all together, and people could just log into the studio setting. That's yeah, that's we, my
3: thought. Yeah, we've been because I because Joe Calista, the chair, he's been having a lot of town halls with us. Yes, he was telling us yesterday that I was kind of the plan. At least that's what it seems like for fourth year. Is like we only like we have to sign up for a day that we go in each week and then the other two days we're on Zoom and I think that's was kind of what he was hitting at is um that there's going to be people in the actual studio but also half the class is going to be like online at the same time. Yeah. So. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, we'll see what happens. Again, we all have to be patient
1: with the process uh because mm-hmm. a lot of it is completely out of our control because if the state of Kansas says that this is not going to happen then we all have to shift.
0: Yep. That's very true. So then in terms of KU, how long have you been teaching there and how long did you teach at CU Denver? And those were the only two schools you taught at, correct?
2: Yes.
1: Yes. Uh, So I've been at KU uh, two full years now, but the first year wasn't really an official faculty position. It was a visiting professor position. Um, And that's where I met uh, you and Jordan.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and then, um, this last fall, fall 2019 is when I started officially as faculty there. So, um, the spring was uh, two, uh, academic years and then university of Colorado, I taught in Boulder starting in when I came out of graduate school, when I moved back to Colorado, I taught in Boulder starting in, uh, I believe 2005 and I did that till 2009 and then I started again in Denver when, uh, just um, briefly after they started their undergraduate program, in 2014. Wow. Okay. So I took some time off between 2009 and 2014.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then this is just a thought that I've been having because I feel at, feel like as I mature and grow. Um, As an architect, I'll want to be a professor one day or teach at CU Denver or do something Mm -hmm. of that nature. So what led you to go teach at CU Boulder to begin? What was kind of the first thing that happened? Uh,
1: So I was a TA uh, in my graduate studies in Chicago, and I really enjoyed that experience, uh, being able to work with some uh, lower-level graduate studios and then uh, undergraduate studios. So when I came back to Denver, I wanted to continue that process and thinking the same thing that you are now, potentially wanting to pursue it even further. So what I did was I just reached out to uh, some colleagues uh, at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And at that time, Boulder and Denver were kind of this, they had some, they had more affiliation than they do now. Now I think they're completely separate, but uh, so I met with someone in Denver uh, who wanted, who were saying that they needed someone in Boulder. Um, and so, uh, just handed in the resume, the interview, the portfolio, and then, um, started teaching studio, actually the studio that I taught you guys. So studio two in the second year.
0: Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool. So then this will be kind of the meat of what we're going to talk about today, but how do you sure. effectively teach architecture for success? And, Questions that go along with that are going to be your style of teaching, your thoughts on digital versus hands, um, and workload as well. And then we'll go on to the other questions.
1: So, so you got you had a little bit of understanding how I came to it, right? And I had to, you know, I didn't grow up with architects, I didn't grow up with artists or designers, uh, but I I always wanted, I always had this kind of understanding of. I wanted to be a part of some kind of design so when i finally did have the opportunity to go to architecture school i had to really work really hard to catch up to say because a lot of my colleagues did grow up in these kind of situations and had knew how to use their tools or how to draw or how to express themselves architecturally and so that has really set up the way i teach is because i know that everybody comes to their talent or want in different ways Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for me, as long as I see someone giving at least the effort to really, and they might not have the talent in the beginning, but I'm sure with enough effort they can get there. um, I really try to nurture that effort. I mean, at some point, we all know that there is uh, a tangible process to architecture. You have to uh, be able to uh, convey or um, be able to present your projects in a way that is aesthetically Uh, acceptable Mm. and uh, and so you know you really have to still be honest with people about how that is coming along because the honesty will help them get better Uh, or if they're already at a level that they're really doing well uh, the honesty will help them uh, think a little bit deeper about their process but I really try to help um, people understand um, that you know if you're not there yet there you just have to keep giving that effort and of course, you're going to have the students who um, aren't there and just aren't giving effort. And, you know, as a professor, you really shouldn't tell people this is not for you at this time. You have to just help them come to that conclusion themselves. Um, mm-hmm. I know when I was going to school, there was more of the professor telling you, yeah, you might want to try a different study. Uh, but now it's not so much the philosophy. You kind of have people help them make that decision themselves. Um so that's, a, that's my, that's the way I come about it. I, I try to really engage with students as individuals, uh, and see where they're at because, you know, in their in conversations with desk crits or presentations, you can see that they really, you know, who really wants to be a part of this and who does not. Um, and it's just helping with skill sets. um, in terms of, you know, analog to, uh, versus digital, uh, When I was going to school, we didn't have any digital. So everything was analog. Mm -hmm. So I have that skill set. And I think that, um, you know, that skill set has helped me understand the digital process a little bit better, or at least understand how to manipulate the digital process. And so, yes, I I will always have students really hone their analog skills, even though some students aren't comfortable with doing that because we are so digital now. But I think in the long run, it will help them. Uh, become better as not only in the digital process, just as designers and architects, be able to have that hand or hot, you know, eye hand uh, relationship uh, that um, really gets you to think a little bit more about what you're doing. Um, And so, yeah, I always will encourage the analog. Don't get me wrong. Digital, there is a lot of different things you can do with it, but I think if you have, if you're really versed in your analog skills, the digital is, is more of a skill is more of a tool than it is your de- acting as your designer if mm. that makes sense because mm-hmm. um, i think a lot of people that start with digital sometimes it can become their designer um and and you lose authenticity because you can't really defend the design at that point right beyond mm-hmm. i i did an algorithm and voila there's my design um mm. So that's that's another reason for the analog, and then analog, you know, analog is still models. It's still building things with your hands. It's still being able to have these conversations that are tangible. You know, rotate things, look at them three dimensional in a real time setting. I mean, yes, there are some beautiful digital models, but sometimes those interactions are a little bit more challenging because you can't you can't have that same interaction, and uh, and oftentimes they look too real. Uh, too early. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, as you as you become as you, you know, graduate from being a student into professional, you'll learn that clients really hold on to images. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if you present them a photorealistic images image and more the schematic uh, understanding of the design, they're going to hold on to that and you're going to have to break that want. Right. Yeah. If something changes. Mm-hmm. Right. And inevitably it all it changes a lot, but that's where people are. I mean, they, they're drawn to it because it, some of these things look like photographs and that's what they expect. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. But when
1: you, when you're able to sketch and when you're able to uh, give some quality to where it keeps the mind, everybody's mind open, that there is some uh, room to manipulate and change. I think that's where analog helps out a lot.
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then along with that, and Jordan, you can chime in for this too. I want to hear your thoughts. Mm-hmm. But we have 3D printers now, and those things are way advanced. And you can you can have any idea, and you can print off this Zaha d curved building in a small little model, and have that in the the click of a the click of a mouse. Um, in we, your, we did that and exactly, Gre- Greg and in that's, studio that's a when lot. I first started doing it. <laughs> just to bring it up with Greg. And the, yeah. I remember asking you, too, I was like, can I please do a 3D print model? And you're like, uh, possibly. Let me think about it. And then you <laughs> let us do it, finally. <laughs> and I was yeah. so happy. Yeah. But what what are your thoughts on that? It saved us a lot it of time. It did <laughs> save a lot of time. So it's like one of those things that saves a lot of time. But when you really work on a model, which we, me and Jordan have both have done, you really yes. learn how maybe joints might go together, or how walls might be placed, or how windows might go. I think that definitely was something that I took from it. Um, but what what are your thoughts?
1: Well, that's the thing. I mean, even Zaha Hadid's designs have to be fabricated, right? And so, if if you're if you're just relying on three D printing, yes, I know. I remember you guys approaching me about this, and like I said, I try to be open to. <laughs> all the different processes because I, catch that. that's right, that's right. Um, because I know they're out there and you need to learn them. But for instance, if a general contractor comes to you and you have this very uh, fluid curve or shape or something like that, they still have to figure out, you still have to be able to detail it to figure out how it comes together. Um, mm-hmm. As of, I mean, there are, I mean, 3d printed buildings are not there. They could be coming, but they're still at a very basic level right now but a very, you know, a building that is very usable at this point is still detailed and fabricated, right? And those, those details may, might, if they're done well enough, might make the building look like it's seamless and it looks like it might be 3D printed. But, you know, behind that image, there are the fabrication joints. Mm-hmm. And so when you do an analog mm-hmm. model, it might take you more time because you're trying to figure out how to make those joints. And so when you have that, when you have this conversation with a general contractor, your response won't be, well, I just printed it out. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll, you'll like, well, you know, I, I soaked a little bit of wood, I bent it this way, you know, so you'll have those kind of conversations.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. I lo- yeah. Jordan.
3: One, one question I actually had is yeah. you've taught, um, pretty different levels of studios all the way down to first year and you've taught some pretty high level studios as well. Yeah. I was wondering like how do you approach those studios differently? Because obviously the skill sets and, and whatnot are very different. The content that you're teaching is very different. So I wanted to know like how do you approach different levels differently?
1: Well, I, you know, I enjoy the, the level that we met at the second year level because I know at some point you guys are still developing your skills. And so mm-hmm it's not all about design per se. You know, I still have to be uh, aware that I might have to just teach more, a little bit of drawing or I might have to teach how you use a little bit of software or things of that nature. And so you really gauge that studio level based off of that. But I think that's a good thing because it gets reinforced with your design process. Cause you know, your first year or your foundational studios, it's all about how to use tools and draw, but you're not really, trying to come up with your own design at that point, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times some of those things don't stick because you weren't applying them to what your thoughts were, right? You were just, they're being prescriptive and you're being told what to draw. Mm. Um, and so now when it's your design, you're trying to figure out your design and how to use your skills. And that's that's what makes it stick, right? And mm-hmm. so when we get to, when I get to upper level studios, like a 600, 609 that I have taught before or a 508, at some point yes i do have a different expectation i i would have the expectation that you know how to use your tools and i rely more on your design and so i'm pushing you to think a little bit more uh in a way that is um in a direction that you really haven't thought about before right i'm, I'm actually i'm mm-hmm. pushing it to be a little bit uncomfortable in studio and not mm-hmm. everybody appreciates that i mean a lot of people are like i don't really like this right but i think at the <laughs> but i think at the end when you kind of overcome those uh, mindsets and think, oh, I can do something different, uh, I think it's more rewarding personally. Um, And with my experience in the practice uh, and helping people, especially detail in the upper level studio, because a lot of people come up with these very fluid designs or very lyrical designs and always question, how do you make it happen? And when you help someone understand anything can happen You just know how to have to detail it. And so when they have Mm -hmm. that detailing process, I think that clicks for a lot of people and says, okay, yes, I can do these things. These aren't out of my realm of making it happen.
0: It's it's funny you say, you talk about being uncomfortable because when I was in your studio I definitely when we were doing the first exercises I was like what is happening right now like I've never done anything like this and I was I was definitely uncomfortable and by the yeah. end of it I it it's something that's going to be in my portfolio cuz I absolutely love that project and the like the process of it and I learned so much from you doing that so thank you and it's it just comes to show there has to be a it, kids are not always going to be comfortable and they're not always going to be, like, they have to learn, be able to adapt and do all these things differently to kind of be yeah. excellent at what we do.
1: Well, in that that process, especially in that process, a lot of times uh, students will come with a preconceived understanding of what architecture is, uh, which is a bit limited, I think. Um, and so, you know, for me, architecture wants to, uh, have some kind of, it wants to evoke feeling, whether negative or positive. (laughs) Right. But Mm if it, if it doesn't, I mean, and some people feel completely opposite. You know, some people think successful architecture is architecture you don't think about. Right. Because it just becomes part of your background. And, but I know, you know, for a lot of people, buildings that they really remember are the buildings that evoked some kind of emotion. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have to agree with them, but, um, you know, as long as the, it does something for you, and it doesn't have to be an overcomplicated space. It could be a very, very um, basic space that has some kind of detail to it. That you know, maybe it creates just some kind of different lighting or things of that nature. But something that has create uh, evokes some kind of emotion. So those are the, what those exercises are about: is to get you to think about not just the kind of four walls of architecture, but what architecture what architecture can do emotionally for you as designers and potentially as end users
0: i completely agree and I, I love that idea i the idea of architecture doing that invoking emotion is so powerful and when we spend 80 90 of our days in buildings that that becomes that more that much more important um yeah so yeah so then when you have your studios, how do you choose site and the type of project that it is? Because you have an outline from KU um, of kind of what you need to teach. But you with us, you did a maker space and a community center. And then yeah. and then you also did the bike, uh, the alley, the bike shop. The bike yeah, stop. the bike stop. Yeah. And then also a bike and shop. Bike yep, shop. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So how do how you do well, that?
1: Well, in the lower level studios, it's it's about the research that I'm doing with transportation and how it fits in with architecture. And so, and I think it works
2: uh,
1: a little bit better because if we're talking about the scale of uh, a mic- micro mobility or a bike, uh, the scales of the, the beginning studios are smaller. And so we can, those can fit a little bit easier. They can become a little more tangible for students to say, okay, I can take some of these details off a more industrial design project and create it more into a inhabitable architectural project. Uh, And so that's how I start there. And then, you know, I think in terms of site, a lot of times I will, when I was growing, when I was in undergrad, a lot of our sites are kind of in the middle of nowhere. And so it was basically designing a jewel in the middle of field, uh, which, you know, in some respect that's could be a little bit, I mean, it's, fun, but I think your um, designs have more meaning when you have context around it, if you have to respond to contextual um, uh, rel- you know, contextual pieces, right? And so a lot of times when I pick sites, they're usually in some kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, because Lawrence isn't really urban, but we were mm-hmm. on Mass Street. That's probably the most urban space in Lawrence. Um, and so... know but picking in between those two buildings right i'm constricting you in terms of what your um, abilities are you know you're going to have two elevations how do you connect the buildings things of that nature Uh, when i get to upper level studios this last one we really started to focus on the community so we worked in east lawrence and we had meetings with the community and so the architecture was about working with potentially end users but listening to people and understanding what their wants and needs are and how that can translate into something that is um, both how it meets your needs as a designer but meets the needs as an end user. And so that was an interesting process because uh, a lot of the comments we got back from the community because they were part of our midterm and our final review is that they had never thought about their site this way. right? And Mm -hmm. a lot of them were pretty kind of, okay. we just need this, this, and that. And then as students came up with their own creative solutions, that really made some people excited about okay these are the potentials i mean yes some of these things that we come up with as the university potentially are not economically feasible but there's always <laughs> a way to get there right and so yeah. at least the idea is started um mm-hmm. so yeah um that's that's how i pick sites that's why i've been picking sites with upper level studios trying to get more engagement with an end user or, uh, or a potential community mm-hmm. member um, and so students aren't just relying on my comments or my colleagues' comments at the university or even other architecture or, or architects' comments, but community comments, right? Because those, at the end of the day, you guys are going to have to change your language a little bit from all the stuff that we teach you in architecture school about how to talk about Part T and, you know, sections, elevations. You know, when you commu- mm-hmm. when you present to a community, you have to speak a language that... Uh, they can have take ownership of a design that you're doing because Mm. you're basically designing for them
0: exactly Mm -hmm. yeah and then just for a little bit a little bit of background for our listeners so you are a bicyclist and you do that frequently actually almost every day probably and then um you have or you had a shop called chocolate spokes and if you could just touch on that pretty briefly just so people can kind of get an understanding of where you're coming from
1: yeah yes so uh my cycling started when i was an in undergraduate in boulder uh, you know i raced for the cycling team up there and then the school of architecture took over so i uh, you know either you make a decision because they both take a lot of time if you want to be successful in cycling mm-hmm. you you're on your bike a lot mm-hmm. right because you have to train your body if you want to be successful in architecture you're in the studio a lot um, yeah, <laughs> and so I I chose I chose school, uh, which is a, a, s- a smart thing to do because my parents were tired of me doing the athletic thing, but um, but I wouldn't consider myself uh, a cyclist right now. I don't own a car, so I'm all about utility. Right, I, I'm not into competing or things of that nature. And so that's how when I opened the bike shop, I was really trying to help people understand what bikes are about being more of a tool uh, as opposed to a recreational piece. Um, And so, yes, I had chocolate spokes for 10 years. And what was unique about it is that we not only were a service shop, so we serviced a lot of the neighborhood and connected to the neighborhood because the neighborhood was needing uh, reinvestment, but uh, we designed and fabricated our own bikes. And so those fabrication, you know, the first fabrications really were custom bikes. So we, I basically, these people came to me and told me what they wanted. And a lot of times they were more on the competitive side. So they were gravel bikes, they were road bikes, they were cyclocross bikes. But then I had more people who were wanting to understand what it is to use a bike every day. And so those bikes became more utility bikes. Uh, And so that's part of what I'm trying to get done at KU as a seminar course and research is how do we start to design bikes that start to accommodate our everyday in the built environment. Mm. Um, Because a lot of times you'll start to see these bikes, you're starting to see them more and more, but they're all imported from Europe. And so we're having to adapt European designs to what we do in the United States. So if we could start to manufacture, putting more of its emphasis on manufacturing them in the United States, then we start to meet the need of more of a US um, human powered potential culture at that point. Uh, And so uh, seminars will involve, uh, being able to study the first part of the seminar I did it last semester but it was mostly in class because my equipment was still here but the first part of the class will be about the history of transportation the history of multi-modal transit um, history of bikes and then uh, some history about uh, our infrastructure and how roads are set up and things of that nature and then the second part of the class will start to be more hands-on design and fabricate based off of what we learned in the beginning. So Uh, for me, that is, we talked about the analog part of architecture, you know, about craft and what it means to learn how to make things. Mm. Um, and this is pretty specific because it is using alloys and steels. So you learn how to weld, you learn how to cut, you learn how to form. Um, so it's, it's basically making a usable model. And so that was, that's the intent about bringing my equipment to East Hills and starting that, uh, and then the grant that we wrote this summer, was actually about how do we empower neighborhoods that need reinvestment to design and fabricate their own micro mobilities to potentially so potentially a city could go to this neighborhood as a fabricator and say, We need bike share bikes. Can you do that? And so as opposed Mm -hmm. to going to larger companies or overseas, we can start to empower a neighborhood to to do that as well. So it becomes a skill set training, it's becomes job opportunity and it also adds some value to neighborhoods too.
0: I love that. That that sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. And so. I think that was that was perfect for our listeners, so they mm-hmm. kind of get a background of that part of your life, and then yeah. So with you teaching at you were, how long did you teach at Denver?
1: Um, so from 2015 to right to when I met you, yep. uh, 2018. Okay. So. Yeah, just about three and a half years.
0: Cool. Well, I kind of want to talk about the comparison of the two schools and not not to be like, oh, this one's better than this or they do this better, Um, but just what different teaching philosophies might be. And also, it's two different environments in terms of big downtown Denver and then you have Lawrence College Town um it's it's an amazing town for sure but it's just completely different so how how did those compare for you so far um looking at it
1: teaching at lawrence was like teaching in boulder uh you know you're like you said you're in a pretty nice you're kind of a utopian college setting um and i think your formality of architecture is a little bit different because contextually there's not there's not as much that you would have, for instance, at the University of Colorado Denver. I mean, you're in the middle of mm-hmm. Denver, Colorado, in the city. Um, but I think, you know, University of Kansas, I believe, is uh, almost a hundred or over a hundred years old. So there's yeah. a lot of entrenched uh, philosophies and ways of doing things, um, and so which mm-hmm. can be good and not so positive. I mean, it's good because you know what you're going to get. You know that there's going to be a structure to the program Um, and it also, and you know that there's going to be some value when you graduate, when you say you have a KU degree. Um, But at the same time, everything needs to evolve, you know, not only just uh, your architecture, but who you interact with needs to evolve too. And sometimes when you're on a college campus like that, you tend to just stay on the campus, right? Because you're so focused Mm -hmm. on school is that, um, you know, oftentimes you just don't leave campus. And that was the same thing for me when I was in Boulder. Um, Boulder was my world, right? And so, uh, but then when you have to go get uh, employment and stuff like that, your world changes. And so I think those are kind of the intangible differences of the schools. Uh, University of Colorado Denver has always been known for its graduate study program. And they've been always kind of this tiered position with the University of Colorado Boulder, it was assumed if you got, I, I believe it was written, but if you received a certain GPA, you basically matriculated into the master's program in Denver from Boulder. But since they have separated, everybody applies equally. And so that I think that gives a lot more strength to the Denver program. But I think what really gives the Denver program a lot more strength is the inception of the undergraduate program. So the program that you're in right now, Jared, I think it might only be six years or seven years old. That's, so it's not very... You know, it's not, you know, it's, it's really quite young and in its infancy. So, I mean, it's, that's the exciting part is you're kind of at that ground zero, but at the same time, um, the, the advantage of it being like that, where it is, is that you are working right now, right? Yes. And so you can go out there and work and be a part of a firm and go to the school. And so your degree, to some extent, people know what you as a individual, as a person, Right. But when your program is so young, you know, sometimes people are like, well, what what is really how do I really gauge the authenticity of the program at that point? Whereas KU, you know, it's over 100 years old. So we know mm-hmm. people know what they're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, but I, I think with inside UCD, you should be excited because um, there are some people who are moving on and some young people moving in as professors with faculty. And so those philosophies, the evolution is seems to be always constant, which is good and which is you need. So it's, it's um, fun- I, Yes. I think they're both unique situations.
0: It's funny you say evolution. Cause that's the s- kind of slogan or motto right now for the school it's called evolution and they're kind of changing they're changing a lot of things at the school so it's definitely unique in that sense to see what's happening but then being at KU it's so established and everybody everybody or they have that reputation and you know what you're getting like you said Um, so I think at that point then you can choose based off of education um, but also where you want to be um, location wise yeah. or what works, what makes sense. And like for me right now, I'm in state tuition and that's saving me a lot of money, just like you did yes. too mm-hmm. within state. So it's like circumstances like that, that might play into choosing a school too.
1: Oh, most definitely. And I think that's, I mean, that's what a lot of, uh, young people are thinking about right now, which is really interesting because when I was going to school, we thought about the expense, but it wasn't something that was our kind of game changing decision maker. Mm-hmm. Right. We knew it was going to be investment, but I think now a lot of young people are really gauging their schools or where they want to go based off the cost and not the experience. Um, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is just the way that things have come, you know, because schools have become so expensive, but I think a lot of Mm -hmm. students might lose out in terms of an experience if, um, if that's solely the decision maker is the, the economics of college, right? Um, so it, it goes all it goes in all different directions, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, but I, I do remember at school. You know, it's, it wasn't cheap, but it wasn't my kind of um, in my psyche. And when I came along, um, or when I was in school, I think it was my sophomore year. Um, they started to institute the student loan program. Uh, before you used to have to do. To get a loan with your parents and they had to co-sign your loan Mm. and then Mm -hmm. when i was a sophomore you no longer had to do that it was your loan now and Mm -hmm. so there you know therein lies the okay now i've made okay this is expensive
2: (laughs) (laughs) but um
1: but i I had to pay for my own school at that point i mean it wasn't my parents by any means
0: cool well i think that was Pretty good talking about the comparisons um, and then the next topic and kind of the last topic will be future directions in terms of your life and also at KU as a professor. And so you are you going to be moving out there with out to Lawrence with your family um, and then you'll be there as a professor indefinitely. And do you do you plan to practice at all? Um, what What is the plan?
1: Uh, so the first question, do I plan to move out there? You know, I have, my kids are, I have a freshman in high school and then another, my other child is sixth grader. Nice. So they're pretty, they're pretty entrenched in what they're doing here. Uh, So I think it'd be pretty hard to move them. So in the short term, no, my family won't be moving there. Uh, But it is Kansas uh, because it's relatively, I mean, if I were teaching somewhere in the East coast, then I think that equation would have to be a little bit different, Uh, but it is Mm -hmm. relatively close. Yeah. An uh, in all intensive purpose. Um, so, but yes, I am committed to the University of Kansas to uh, be a professor there um, and see what we can do. I'd like to do more things in Kansas City, to be honest with you, uh, and and start to, and continue some of the things that we did here with the bike shop, but not so much as a sole entity, but using some of the processes of what the university can offer. Uh, students participation. So for instance, if we find another corner that needs to be refurbished or rebuilt, either that becomes a design build, right? It Mm -hmm. becomes something to where um, as opposed to, you know, finding um, a a site that you can build a house on, you start to, again, interact with constituent bases. You start to interact with communities. Um, You're able to do uh, a tenant finish design build, which is just as important as a ground up design build. Because uh, you start to learn about historic architecture, you know what how things are done in the past, how you correct them now. Um, so that you know, as a future, I would see that as where I want to be at KU, is doing more work with Kansas City. Uh, I know that we have a relationship with uh, the Kansas City Design Center, and I mm-hmm. think uh, Joe, as a chair, is trying to uh, really strengthen that relationship even further. Um, so there's could be potential there. Um, and then, in terms of practice, you know, for me, my practice right now is more about continuing to understand how we start to change the culture, and we look at how we move through our landscapes differently. Um, you know, just we we are a country that are so auto based or so petroleum based that mm-hmm. I don't think it's really good for our total overall mental or physical health. Um, uh, and it, but it, it I say that with, you know, going through COVID right now, you know, people are really evaluating if they even want to be in dense centers or cities and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, you know, we're talking about social distancing and things of that nature for years, you know, we as architects, uh, and planners, we're talking about oh, density is more efficient. You know, it's all about connectivity. It's all about, uh, being with your fellow person. But now with COVID, you know, that thought process has to be a little bit different but i still think it you know as all things we'll get through this i mean we have precedent of going through these things before um unfortunately we're just taking us a little bit longer It's a little bit seems like it's a little bit difficult because we're in the middle of everything but i think in the future i think the urban centers are still going to be very valid in the way we do things um i think they might even be more valid because we start to take care of each other more we start to Uh, understand that we're not just a single entity unto ourselves Um, Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's that's for me the future is looking at those kind of aspects of um, engaging at more of the infrastructural level
2: Hmm.
0: I I definitely see that more here in Denver uh, because in a big city where there's a lot of I mean not as much traffic as other big cities but People, yeah, tend to, right. people tend to do the scooters and bicycles and then you start getting away from it because I live in Arvada. It's about 30, 40 minutes away. There's I, I yeah. rarely see bicycles unless I get up in the yeah. mountains. And so um, for I think that's an interesting thought to see how that can be advanced more, how it can be brought in more and get people to do that and see the benefits of it as well.
1: And it all goes with multimodal transit. So I know
0: Arvada; they're working on their Arvada line, uh, the light rail. Yeah, it's um, up and running. Mm-hmm. Is it up and yeah. running?
1: And so, you know, that's one of the things that we've always that Denver has been guilty of. You know, people, especially cyclists, like to try to compare Denver to Portland. But back in the '70s and early '80s, uh, we had the decision to make, and I believe our mayor at the time, or maybe it was even our governor. Um, wanted to go more uh, like Portland did but if you if you're too young to remember when I was a kid <laughs> all those downtown skyscrapers they all had petroleum signs on them so we had a huge petroleum lobby in Denver uh. right um, and so you had um, texaco was here you had all these different um, not or all these ga- or petroleum companies that were wanting to push more the you know, the automobile. And so that's the way Denver went. Um, and so I think now we're starting to see maybe that wasn't the, the best way to go because, um, every time we add another lane to a highway or a street, you know, the thought is, Oh, we'll relieve congestion. Well, you're just creating another demand. You're creating more demand. Mm-hmm. And so those things get filled up before they're even finished. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think the thought really has to go to, more how we use multimodal because a lot of people talk about the cities that they go to and say, I didn't have to use a car, right? I had I had I was able to be a tourist through all kinds of different transit systems, right? Um, and those are they're memorable experiences, and those are experiences that are, uh, are more positive. So we'll see where that goes. Cool. But I think it's going to be more of a challenge in Kansas City than it is in Denver. I'll tell
2: you.
3: Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. Kansas City is kind of behind on on that part. I know yeah. Lawrence is a bit different. They they kind of are more bike friendly and whatnot. Um, but yeah, Kansas City is they're 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 pretty behind on that.
1: Well, it was interesting because Lawrence was named number four for most bikeable cities uh, last year. Really? And it wasn't because it mm. wasn't because and everybody was like. I think they had the same reaction you did, Jared. Wow. But it wasn't because they had all the facilities in in place. It was based off because they had done the most in the last year. So, for instance, they were before Mm -hmm. Boulder. Boulder already has that in place. So everybody knows Boulder is like that. But Lawrence, I guess, had made a bigger effort to do newer infrastructural changes. And so that's Mm -hmm. what helped them get that
0: position. That makes sense. Well, that's, yeah, yeah, there's a
3: bunch of things they're doing with like obviously on the roads and then there's this 20, was it a 21 mile loop that they're doing for cyclists and runners around the city. So, yeah. yeah. Cool.
1: And I'd like to see those things become more connected. So as opposed to just for like recreational things around the city, how does it start to engage into the city? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, And so those are, those are the kinds of things I would like to push more uh, as my future goes.
0: Cool. Well, um, I think that is almost everything that we had to talk about, but as a last oh, question, um, what would yeah. be some advice that you would give to the current architecture student or young architect um, as they go through their education?
1: Um, as a young, as, as you're first starting out, architecture can be challenging and I, I know it's been known to have a lot of attrition. You know, people are just like, I, I'm tired of this, but I think <laughs> at some point, if you can get past that first, I guess, year, year and a half, it's a very useful education because it gets you to think as an individual. You come up with your own designs. It's almost entrepreneurial in a way because you come mm-hmm. up with an idea and you have to defend it and people will critique you on that. Yep. Um, and I say that is because the biggest thing I would say for young architects and students especially is that – Not all of you are going to be architects when you graduate, right? Um, And your life will change. Your trajectory will change. Your wants will change. But the education of architecture will allow you to make those pivots easier because you've had to kind of defend your own ideas throughout the last four or five years that you've been in school. Um, And what I would say, too, is that when those changes come, be open to them. Just because you spent... Mm -hmm five or six years in architecture school does not mean you have to be an architect, right? Yeah. Don't, yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean you have to be, um, you, you don't, because I've seen a lot of people in practice who are just there. They're not happy um, because they were just figure, you know, I spent all this time for the education and things and I just have to be an architect. Right. And that was one of the things when I, when I became licensed, I told my wife, well, it's time to do something new I've done. I've got to where I thought I would be. Um, but I have other interests, and if I can make those happen, then why not, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so just be open to those changes. But I would say the, the education of architecture is unique enough that will help you uh, navigate uh, those directions easier.
0: Excellent. That's, I, I think that's an amazing take, an amazing last yeah. words. Well, Gregory, oh, thank you so much. That was incredible. Sure. Um, and this will conclude our interview with you, um, but go like, rate, and subscribe to help us make the show better. And you can also find us in, on Instagram at Pod and email us at allnighterpod at gmail.com with the, any questions or comments. Um, but thank you everyone for listening and have a great day.